This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge on RN. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. I watched when the World Trade Center came tumbling down. And I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was coming down. Well, no, they weren't. The whole thing never happened. But for a disturbing number of people, it doesn't really matter whether Donald Trump really saw people cheering on 9-11 or not. It's just another option at the rhetorical salad bar of alternative facts. Welcome to the post-truth world. For many of us, post-truth represents something bad. It's a malign recent development in our political and cultural lives. But for today's guest, post-truth is actually devoid of moral content, and it's something that's always been with us. Post-truth, you might say, is in fact a kind of default condition of uh, the way in which intellectual life occurs. And so the post-truth condition, I would say, is the normal state, and the truth condition, where we have one frame of reference in terms of which we talk about what's true or false, uh, that's something that's had to be imposed. Steve Fuller has the Auguste Comte Chair in Social Epistemology at the University of Warwick in the UK. You might remember him on this very program a while back talking about superintelligence. Well, Steve's very interested in the institutionalisation of knowledge, in who gets to determine what's accepted as truth. And he has a new book coming out a little later this year titled Post-Truth, Knowledge as a Power Game. For Steve, the post-truth condition in philosophy begins with Plato. Anyone who's taken a course in the history of Western philosophy will know that in the period before Plato, of course, there was something that we call philosophy, but all the philosophers before uh, Plato were people who produced lots of different frameworks, but they were really just sort of alternatives. They often were in conflict with each other. And this is very much like the environment in which we operate now, where we talk about uh, alternative frames providing, uh, you know, alternative facts and things of that kind, different ways of looking at reality. And they're sort of contesting in some sort of relatively open space which nowadays we associate with the media, but this was the kind of the forum of ancient Athens. And so Plato steps into this and is trying to resolve the situation uh, because he actually sees the idea that there are these multiple frameworks, what we would call now a post-truth regime, as socially destabilizing. And eventually, actually, the, the, the fall of Athens was happening at the time Plato was living. Uh, and so uh, he was thinking, well, if we're going to come up with an ideal society, we're going to have to have one regime of truth, where all of these concepts conflicts are somehow resolved in some sort of format, and this is where issues of the philosopher king come into play. Um, and, and that's kind of, I would say, the moment at which you start to get the truth regime, where there's a certain way of training and thinking that, as it were, allows all these alternative frameworks to be resolved in one way that then has authority over everyone in society, and everyone has to defer to it. So, when you mentioned the philosopher kings then, within Plato's Republic, these are the people who are the guardians of truth or the gatekeepers of truth, if you like, and, and indeed the producers of a certain kind of truth, which is different to the truth consumed by the masses. Is that how it works? Yes, that's right. In fact, Plato uh, 
is often credited or blamed, as the case may be, for talking about issues of there being double or multiple truths, right? So there, as it were, the kind of knowledge that people need to have in order to live is appropriate to their place in society. But all these different forms of knowledge are, as it were, hierarchically arranged. It's different levels of truth that are appropriate to keep the entire system kind of stabilized. And the philosopher King has the sort of highest form of knowledge, which is knowledge of the entire hierarchy, the entire regime. And one of the functions of the philosopher King in this respect is to kind of limit the extent to which everyone else in society can think about alternative ways of framing reality. And the idea here is that the way you, you impose a truth regime is by making people think that the way in which the, the dominant hierarchy, what the philosopher th kings think, is in fact the only way to think, and everyone has to sort of, as it were, think in accordance with that. Uh, and, and see, the whole idea of having this kind of truth regime is to inhibit those tendencies, you might say, uh, that people have to think about alternative possibilities. And that's one reason why, for example, that Plato wanted to ban the playwrights and the poets from the Republic. Uh, that's a very famous, even notorious aspect of the whole Plato ideal society thing. It's basically because the playwrights and the poets are presenting a vision of reality because of their vividness, especially if these playwrights and poets are good, that in a way could start um, competing with the dominant mode of reality that the philosopher king wants to impose. And that then gets people thinking, huh, you know, things don't have to be quite this way at a sort of more general level. Things could be a different kind of way. And Plato wanted to make sure people, as it were, didn't think beyond their station, right? So in other words, people, as it were, had the kind of knowledge so they can function properly in their everyday lives. But what you don't want is people engaging in what in philosophy we would call second order thinking about whether the kinds of ways in which we run the world are really the best ones. All of this has such a modern echo, doesn't it, in the uh, the presidency and the campaign in particular of of Donald Trump. I mean, here in in a in that according to that platonic model, Trump would appear as a, a playwright, right? Or, or at least a performer yes, exactly. who holds out this vision of how things can be different. Well, exactly. And he and, and, and this, is, this is the interesting thing, right? Because while Trump was a, a billionaire for quite a while, the, the reason why he had, let's say, the enormous Twitter following even going into the presidential campaign was because he was a virtual reality TV star. This is very much the kind of thing that Plato wanted to prevent, right? Because in that respect, Trump is very much, he's maybe not a playwright, but he's an actor. He's a good actor, right? And, and tilting and at the philosopher kings as well, right? Saying, you know, th these people are constructing a reality which benefits them, not you, my, my voters. My well, ex ex exactly. And, and, you know, so, for example, if you look at the way in which Trump was attacking Hillary Clinton and, uh, and the Washington establishment generally, what he called, you know, what he was talking about, the need to drain the swamp, as he called it, right, during the campaign. I mean, it was all about, as it were, revealing the backstage, as it were, of what keeps the establishment going, as if they too, the, you know, Hillary Clinton and the, and the Washington establishment were also, in a sense, playwrights and actors, you know, fabricating a certain kind of reality. And so the fact that Trump is coming on the scene, right, is that he's contesting that, you know, and, and 
part of the way he's able to do that is by bringing them down, you might say, to his level, right? So say, look, these are not exalted people. These are people who also just operate on the basis of props and persuasion and so forth. Um, and you see, when you get to that kind of stage, level of argument, where basically what you're contesting is not really the truth claims as such, but rather the conditions for the possibility of making truth claims, then you're in the post-truth condition. Well, so far, so philosophical. Where this notion of post-truth becomes a little more contentious is in the world of science. And at this point, we need to take a brief 20th century detour via two important figures, the Italian social economist Vilfredo Pareto and the philosopher of science Thomas Kuhn. Now, Pareto was writing in the 1920s, and he believed that societies are formed by the interplay between two groups, which he called lions and foxes. These are terms that he lifted from Machiavelli. The lions are the guardians of the status quo. They're the establishment, and they correspond roughly to Plato's philosopher kings. The foxes, on the other hand, are the Donald Trumps, the disruptors, the revolutionaries, the ones who hold out a vision of a social order quite different to the established order overseen and defended by the lions. Thomas Kuhn, who was exposed to Pareto's ideas as an undergraduate in the 1940s, saw this same dynamic between traditionalists and revolutionaries, between lions and foxes, as the driving force behind the way that modern science is practised. If you look at Kuhn's view about how scientific change works, most of what science is about, according to Kuhn, is about what the lions are doing. Right? So in other words, what Kuhn calls normal science, that is to say the ordinary everyday science, you know, most of the scientific papers that are published, which are done according to very prescribed theories, methodologies, which scientists are taught about at university and is reproduced over and over and over again, that's in fact the bulk of science. It's not maybe the, the, the aspects of science that get written about in popular uh, literature, you know, where we think about people like Galileo, for example, or Darwin, these kind of trailblazers who break with the establishment. Uh, but in fact, most science is this kind of normal, everyday science, which is the lion science, as it were. And in fact, the thing that's very interesting about the scientific community, according to Kuhn, which makes it different from other kinds of intellectual and cultural formations, is the degree of unanimity on a one paradigm, one paradigm in a science at any given time. And this is really quite striking. And, and unlike, let's say, dominant political authorities, this is done in a kind of self-organizing fashion, right? So it's not like there's a, you know, scientist dictator who kind of lays down the law for all the other scientists, but rather it's through this kind of self-organizing collective peer review process that you end up getting a kind of establishment that's formed. And it's a self-enforcing establishment. And so it actually makes it very difficult for people who have different ideas, including ideas that in the past may have been considered relevant to the scientific uh, inquiry, but had been excluded as a result of the peer review process, it's very difficult for them to actually get entry. So the only time these foxes, you might call them, these are the people with the uh, outside ideas, the only time they actually have a chance is when the paradigm actually begins to run into problems of its own definition. 
Okay, so in other words, the paradigm is not able to live up to its own hype. It's not able to complete its own project. And so these are the things that Kuhn calls anomalies. So experimental outcomes that you cannot explain, right? Facts you did not expect to happen. And it's at that point when you reach a certain critical mass of these things that then the scientific community for a brief period of time opens itself up to the foxes. It has a crisis, as it were. And then the scientific revolution happens. Um, but then it goes back to a normal lion-like state. You know, if you look at Kuhn's theory of science, the radicalness of science is just very temporary, and it's really just a way of flipping the cycle around to get to the next phase of lions. And this is kind of the way Pareto, you know, Pareto had done a theory of science uh, that was like his theory of politics, then that's exactly what it would look like. Doesn't this, though, paint the scientific establishment as too conservative? This is the issue I have here. It isn't, I mean, my understanding of scientific method is that it's a process of constantly questioning assumptions and, and contesting established theories until they're ironclad. And isn't that what the lions are doing? I mean, do you have to be a fox to do that? Well, the problem is that the lions are, again, this goes back to the point I was making earlier on about uh, the control over the possibilities, right? So in other words, the range of possible hypotheses that are tested within a scientific paradigm are quite limited, okay? So there are alternatives being tested, but they're usually within the framework of a general theory that everybody in the field accepts. So if you want to test a hypothesis that doesn't presuppose that general theory in the paradigm, then you're not actually allowed any kind of entry point. You know, so for example, um, some of the people listening here may know I was involved uh, in, and still involved in the intelligent design controversy. And this has a lot to do with providing a kind of fundamental alternative starting point from the way in which we understand uh, biology, especially as a result of the Darwinian revolution in biology. You know, whatever your biology is, you have to start with the assumption that however life came about, it's going to be through processes of uh, genetic variation and uh, natural selection, and that there won't be any room for any kind of larger second-order form of intelligence guiding the process. Now, if you start to introduce intelligence, then you're no longer doing science. You may be doing religion, but you're not doing science. Now, you see, that's an example of of where there's actually, at the outset, an exclusion of possibilities. Of course, this leaves an enormous number of possibilities that still can be tested within the scientific framework. So in that sense, you're right, right? There is always room for testing stuff, but the range is limited. So when you're defending then intelligent design, which you've done in court as part of a, a court case in the, in the US in the 90s, you're not then a proponent or a believer in intelligent design as such. You're more defending the principle that marginal or disruptive forms of knowledge should be allowed to take their place within the epistemic canon. Is that what's going on there? Yes. I mean, I think that's generally speaking true. And, and this is why I have been, in my philosophy of science, I've been generally speaking a supporter of Karl Popper, because I do believe the distinctive feature about science is this kind of interesting combination of putting forward bold conjectures, as Popper put it, and then strong refutations, right? So you have this dynamic going on. So you, so you have to, at the outset, open yourself to a very broad range of possibilities, but then subject them to very difficult tests. And that's what science is about. And that could be applied to 
to any set of beliefs we're talking about here, okay? It doesn't just have to be beliefs that conform to certain kind of institutional requirements because we want to promote a certain kind of theory, but rather any kind of beliefs can be subjected to this. You can treat anything as scientific in this kind of Popperian sense. And so that's kind of what I was defending. So you're right about that. But there was also another kind of issue that's interesting, and this goes to kind of, again, the way the foxes operate. One of the strategies that the foxes use against the lions uh, is uh, not only that we should have a more open environment, it's not just a kind of uh, endorsement of openness as an intrinsically good thing, but rather you can actually identify specific possibilities that have been deliberately excluded, right? So in other words, there are some possibilities that may have been uh, floated in the past, may have been used in the past as a basis for doing good science that the establishment actually excludes now because it doesn't fit with the dominant theory. And see, intelligent design was in fact very much part of the frame of thinking that actually gave us modern science in the 17th century and was in fact very much you know, part of the way in which scientific inquiry was conducted pretty much until the middle of the 19th century when Darwin's origin of species started to really change things substantially. So in promoting intelligent design, one isn't just simply promoting this idea because, you know, one wants to consider every possibility regardless of whether it's ever borne fruit, but rather this is actually a possibility that in the past did bear fruit, but for institutional reasons has now been excluded. And that's the kind of thing that foxes will play against the lions, namely that the possibilities being excluded are being excluded not merely or maybe not even primarily on intellectual grounds, but rather something closer to political grounds because of the need to have consensus in order for science to present a kind of united front as a form of authority in society. But aren't you making an argument then for the kind of openness to ideas and scientific concepts that may have been coded into scientific practice at some point in the past, but were excluded for what may be institutional reasons, but also there might be very sound institutional reasons. I mean, why why wouldn't we then invite, say, right-wing racial theorists into university departments? You know, I mean, it's, sometimes the disruptors are dangerous, not because they challenge institutional vested interests, just but because they're dangerous. Well, you see, I mean, it's interesting you bring up that example. Uh, my view about the whole racial thing is that it ought to be actually more out there. I think a lot of these racial views, in a way, continue to have oxygen precisely because they're just out there, right? So, in other words, because the scientific community refuses to engage very directly with these racists, the racists are able to say in a very fox-like fashion that they're being excluded because they know something that these uh, lions don't want the people to find out about. Whereas I would say, just bring modern genetics uh, to bear on what a lot of these racists are saying, and I think you could just dis the whole racist issue very quickly, frankly. With intelligent design, you've said that the principal aim of intelligent design is to change the ground rules of science to include yes. the supernatural. Um, yes. And, of course, that's the, the grounds of resistance um, to intelligent design as well. Is changing the ground rules of science to include the supernatural a paradigm shift that you would actually like to see? 
Well, look, here's my view. You know, when people hear the word supernatural, they read lots of different things into it. Um, but let's say we, we take a relatively benign view of supernatural, where we're talking about a form of knowledge that goes beyond just what we would normally have of the natural world through empirical inquiry, right? So in other words, having a kind of second order understanding of, as it were, uh, the reason, the meaning, whatever, of why it is the universe hangs together the way it does. If that's what one means about the supernatural, uh, then yes. So my answer to your question, would be yes. See, my own personal view, and again, this is, uh, I'm, I'm not speaking for anyone else other than myself here, I would say that in a sense, a lot of theology, in a way, provides kind of the framework that then really gets carried out in modern science. I think there's a real continuity there. So, in other words, there's no real natural opposition. In fact, if you look at the, from a historical standpoint, I think there's no contestation over this matter. So, what I've just told you, I think, as a historical point is correct. Namely, that if you want to look at where our notions of, you know, gravity and causation and space and time and all these very fundamental notions, even the notions of life and so forth, you will find that there's, you know, there's a theological origin to these things, which over time become, you know, operationalized, secularized, naturalized, and then become kind of part of the normal scientific project. And then people, in a way, don't need to remember the theology. They can just drop that and just pursue science for its own sake. But when you get to a point down the line, when people are asking questions, why are we doing this science? Especially... As you know, science has had checkered consequences, checkered results, as it's become a much more powerful force in our society, right? And, you know, so, for example, the fact that we live in what geologists now call the Anthropocene, where the human species has left the largest footprint on the planet is the primary causal agent of the various changes that are happening on Earth, and whether we're talking about the weather, climate, whatever, I believe that's true. Now, you know, people have questions about this. Why are we doing this? Why do we have this much impact? We're just one among many species. Well, it seems to me this is where the theology matters because actually the theology says we're a privileged species. We know what we're doing fundamentally at the end of the day. However fallible we may be, we're kind of moving, generally speaking, in the right direction, realizing a certain kind of, um, you might say, divine uh, nature that has always been within us. And that would then reinforce the continuity that went from the theology to the science that we have today. Uh, and I have a feeling the more and more pressure that is put on science to justify itself, especially in these, in these large terms we're talking about, the more I think we're going to have to reconsider what kind of a being we think we are as human beings and whether the idea of humanity as just homo sapiens is sufficient to actually capture the nature of the sort of being we are. Well, this conversation is guaranteed to be raising scientific hackles right around the country. Let's, <laughs> let's finish up by raising some philosophical hackles. You sure. have described philosophy as being post-truth all the way down, and that's really going to get on the nerves of analytic philosophers on the grounds that it carries the whiff of postmodernism. Do you identify as a postmodernist? My view about postmodernism... I agree with uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard uh, that postmodernism is a condition. Postmodernism isn't like a style or a, it's a fact about the way in which our world operates. If we want to understand, let's say, the nature of science or the nature of politics, these kinds of progressive narratives that we tell about how these things have gone through history are just that. They are narratives that, in fact, the actual situation, the actual condition is much messier. 
And so for those of us, and here I would include myself, who believe in something like modernity, something like progress in the way in which we have been talking about it, then we actually have to come to grips with the diversity of frameworks, the diversity of different perspectives that, in fact, postmodernism throws up and makes very self-conscious to us. So in a sense, the way I've always looked at postmodernism is kind of, uh, you might say, a troubleshooter for modernism. Right. In other words, showing where modernism does not live up to its own reputation, does not live up to its own hype. But I do not see postmodernism, at least not not in my thinking, uh, as in some sense a rejection of modernism per se, but rather kind of uh, raising the bar for how you realize the modern project. And it's going to have to be a project, I believe, where one moves away from this kind of platonic vision of saying that unless you have one establishment, one truth regime, whether it be in politics or science, you're not going to be able to make progress. Rather, we have to be able to make progress in a space where there are multiple competing frames of reference that are always at play. Uh, And whoever is ahead at any given point, it's a temporary arrangement. And so in that sense, we have to admit the game-like character of reality. Um, And to be honest with you, I think that anyone who considers themselves an endorser of democracy has to basically buy into this idea. So in a sense, uh, I don't see postmodernism as particularly threatening at all. Much like post-truth, it's a a descriptive condition rather than a sort of philosophical identity marker. Exactly, exactly. Well, look, I think we can leave it there, Steve. It's been a really interesting conversation. I wish we had longer because there's, there's much more to talk about. But um, I'll just say, Steve Fuller, it's been great to talk with you. And thanks very much for coming on The Philosopher's Zone. Well, thanks for having me. And make sure you keep an eye out for Steve Fuller's forthcoming book, Post-Truth, Knowledge as a Power Game. Steve is Professor of Social Epistemology at the University of Warwick in the UK. More details on the website. And that's The Philosopher's Zone for another week. Thanks to producer Diane Dean, sound engineer Hamish Camilleri, and executive producer Joe Gelanisi. And of course, thank you for your company. I'm David Rutledge. See you next time. <laughs>